welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guest today is El Monitor State Department correspondent, Elizabeth Hagedorn. Elizabeth previously reported on the region as a freelance journalist in Turkey and Iraq for publications including Middle East Eye, The National, and The Guardian. And she and I will be discussing the latest news and trends in the region in Israel, Iran, and Yemen, as well as the impact of the Ukraine war on the Middle East. Elizabeth, welcome back to the podcast on the Middle East. Hi, Andrew. It's great to be here. Um, looking forward to discussing a busy news week with you. Definitely a busy news week. Let's start in Israel. An awful day yesterday. There were two killed in a terrorist attack in downtown Tel Aviv, 13 others wounded. What do we know this morning about what happened last night? Right. Well, as you said, it's quite a bit of news out of Israel this week. The country is reeling from yet another deadly shooting that authorities believe to be a terrorist attack. Yesterday in central Tel Aviv, in a busy restaurant and bar scene, two people were shot dead and and several others seriously injured as of this morning. Um, Israeli special forces have since tracked down the Palestinian gunman who was hiding out in a mosque in the nearby Jaffa neighborhood. He died in a shootout with police. But this is important to consider in the context of Israel experiencing what's been described as the deadliest period of terrorist violence since 2006 for this country. Late last month, there was a series of shootings and stabbings across Israel that left 11 people dead. At least two of those recent attacks appear to have been inspired by the Islamic State. The group took credit for one of them, and this has raised concerns that localized ISIS cells could be active within Israel's borders. Our own Ben Kasfid writes that um, Israel's Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett, is under extreme pressure right now to stop further attacks. And, And this is because, in part, it comes at a time when Israel is undergoing a political crisis of sorts. A member of Bennett's political party has quit the coalition, depriving his coalition of that razor-thin parliamentary majority. We reported that um, Bennett was caught off guard by this bombshell announcement that came earlier this week from his coalition whip, Yadid Silman. And the reason that her defection is significant is you'll recall that last June, Bennett and then opposition leader Yair Lapid cobbled together what was an improbable coalition of rival factions to form this new Israeli government. And whether this coalition survives is now very much in doubt. And this latest development in Israel could pave the way for none other than former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to return, who as you know, Andrew has been uh, waiting in the wings to stage his political comeback. Definitely. And this is comeback and his critique of the Bennett government has been on security and Israel is now being challenged by these terrorist attacks. And it's important to kind of disentangle the many layers of what's happening in Israel. And, and you laid them out. On the one hand, the attack last night appears to have been committed by a Palestinian 
from Janine. And Janine is the hotspot in terms of armed resistance to the Israeli occupation. And then you mentioned some of the attacks indicate the role of the Islamic State inside Israel. And as Ben Kaspid has reported, this has put the spotlight on the Shin Bet, the highly regarded Israeli National Security, Internal Security Service, about how could this be? How could Islamic State be operating within Israel? And that even leads to another question, because the uh, perpetrators of those two attacks are Arab citizens of Israel. And again, getting back into the coalition politics of what's uh, what's happening, you'll recall that in that June coalition that was put together, one group in the coalition is an Arab party. And it was the first time that an Arab group, an Arab party, has participated in Israeli government formation. Mansour Abbas of the, the Ram party is the leader and made that choice to engage in the Israeli political process. And this was a big step for Israel politically and socially. Israel's Arab citizens had, until then, been frozen out of the governance process in Israel. They make up about 20% or about 1.9 million of Israel's 9 million citizens. And of course, that's in addition to 4.5 million Palestinians living in the West Bank and Gaza. So there are many layers, many dimensions to the security situation in Israel and what it means for Naftali Bennett's government at this time. Absolutely right. I mean, Bennett's government, the Shin Bet, they will face some tough decisions um, in the coming weeks. You mentioned, Janine, the refugee camp. Um, one question they'll face is whether to launch um, a more extensive counterterrorism campaign in that refugee camp, where I believe at least two of the, the recent assailants hail from. Um, so those are just among the tough decisions they'll face in the coming weeks. But you know, maybe while we're on the subject of Israel, uh, we could turn to what we saw play out at the United Nations this week. This was, of course, a vote that was held um, in response to Russia's alleged atrocities in Ukraine. Um, interestingly, uh, nearly every Middle East country abstained from the vote including regional heavyweights like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, as well as countries like Egypt and Jordan and Iraq. Um, the West has sought a united front against Russia, but a number of U.S. allies and partners in the region have been um, reluctant to outright condemn Moscow. Um, Andrew, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, you were at the Doha Forum last month when Ukrainian President Zelensky um, gave a video address. What did you pick up from the conference that could maybe help explain this UN vote and, and the Middle East response to Ukraine's war? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think there are many questions about why uh, so many of our friends and, and partners in the region have uh, abstained. Obviously, adversaries such as Iran and Syria voted against the UN General Assembly resolution. When I was at the Doha Forum, it, it was quite fascinating. I mean, the, the video address by President Zelensky was a surprise. It was riveting. 
And it sparked a lot of conversation among among the delegates. Of course, the Russia invasion of Ukraine and the war was was very much part of the discussions already. But President Zelensky's address really focused attention on what's happening there and how it's affecting what's happening in the Middle East. And here's how I would summarize what I picked up from those I spoke to in Doha. First, it's almost, I would say, not almost, but unanimous that everyone I spoke to, officials, non-officials, thought leaders in the region, were critical and condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There's no excuse for it. The Middle East, in particular, many of the states there are uh, have been uh, victims of aggression by other powers, and they believe in the principle that no state should be attacked unprovoked as Ukraine was. There is also a, a kind of feeling in question about why more wasn't done to head off the conflict. This came up in almost every conversation after the condemnation of, of Russia's attack and behavior and conduct of the war was why didn't the U.S. do more to head it off and, and especially by trying to convince Ukraine to abstain or step back from its interest in joining NATO, which everyone assumes will be part of a ceasefire and, and an eventual resolution to that conflict. So there were questions about that. And I think there was also some contemplation about the exercise of American power. In this case, the U.S. led a rallying of NATO, uh, the armed support for Ukraine, and the unprecedented degree of sanctions on Russia really has taken people aback. Uh, it's, it's really shown leadership by the United States, but it's also shown the extent of international economic power, and not just against an adversary like Iraq or, or Libya, but Russia, the largest country in the world with regard to landmass, member of the Security Council, and a, a significant player in the Middle East in terms of economic and energy markets. So Many of the people there were, I think, pondering what will be the long-term consequences and impact of this. And I should add one more point. As we've been covering at El Monitor, the effect of the war on the region has had severe um, implications in terms of the economies of many of the countries. We can talk first about Egypt. We have an article today coming up about how Egypt has secured $22 billion from the Gulf states to mitigate the economic consequences of the Russia-Ukraine war. Egypt imports a substantial percentage of its wheat and agricultural products from Ukraine. That's obviously been cut off. And it's not just Egypt. The UN has talked about Libya, Yemen, Lebanon, elsewhere, catastrophe upon catastrophe in terms of food security in the Middle East and more broadly, also in terms of Africa and elsewhere. So food prices, inflation, supply chain disruptions, energy prices going up, all of that's affecting us here in the United States, but it's having an even more dramatic impact in emerging markets and countries around the world. Definitely. The Ukraine war has 
impacts far beyond Ukraine's borders, especially in the Middle East, where people are really feeling the impact when it comes to food prices and energy prices. And I, I would recommend um, that uh, those listening check out the really standout reporting from some of our contributors in the region who are covering this issue. Um, you know, you're talking about the Doha conference. Um, Rob Malley was in attendance. Maybe we can turn to um, Iran and the status of the nuclear talks in Vienna, because something that came up at that forum was um, this potential lifting of the foreign terrorist organization designation imposed on the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. That is one of Iran's, that is Iran's um, main demand left here at the Vienna talks. And Mali at the conference sort of left the door open to lifting the designation and, and said only that, you know, sanctions would remain on the IRGC no matter what happens. Of course, taking it off the list, taking the IRGC off the terror blacklist would be very costly for the Biden administration. And we can get into that. But um, Andrew, you and I covered this week um, the status of the nuclear talks in, in Vienna and, and why this issue is holding up the talks. And what we've been told is that the U.S. put forward a proposal that it would delist the IRGC if Iran made a, a public commitment that it would not target Americans. But of course, that's um, politically a non-starter for Iran, which has vowed to avenge the Trump administration's killing of Quds Force Commander Qasem Soleimani, who um, you'll remember died in a U.S. drone strike in Iraq in January 2020. Um, Andrew, we referenced in the headline for our, our article, um, Trump's Revenge, this idea that Trump-era sanctions have at least so far succeeded in boxing in the Biden administration. Do you see a way out for these two countries, a way for them to reach a sort of mutually acceptable compromise here. You said it, Elizabeth, I think the Biden administration has been boxed in by the the Trump era sanctions and the terrorist designation on the IRGC. That was the plan. That was the plan of President Trump, Secretary of State Pompeo and National Security Advisor John Bolton. And for those who haven't done so, I'd, I'd really recommend going back and looking at John Bolton's book, The Room Where It Happened. I've, I've recommended that book. I think it's uh, the, the most comprehensive and insightful account because Bolton was the national security advisor of decision-making during the Trump administration while, while Bolton held that job. And he goes into some detail about it. The belief of President Trump, John Bolton and Secretary Pompeo was maximum pressure. And to increase that pressure, not just by stepping back from the Iran nuclear deal and imposing or threatening to impose secondary sanctions on countries that may have done business with Iran, but imposing new sanctions on Iran. And obviously, the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization is politically quite sensitive, uh, especially if you contemplate, as they perhaps did, and as is happening now, and the administration trying to say, hey, we're, we're going to take the IRGC off the, the terrorist list when everyone knows that the IRGC has been engaged in terrorist activity in the region. Rob Malley is also exactly right in that even if the IRGC 
was removed from the terrorist uh, list, delisted as an FTO, there would still be plenty of sanctions on the IRGC. And no American company is going to be doing business with an Iranian company that's affiliated with the IRGC. Probably no European company would take that on. Now, that's not to say that the IRGC doesn't have its, its reach and its tentacles in all aspects of, of Iranian society. It sure does. Uh, but the point is that the sanctions uh, would remain nonetheless. They were there before the FTO designation. They'd be there after the FTO designation. And then, as you pointed out, it becomes a sensitive issue inside Iran because the IRGC is powerful. It's not just uh, the kind of frontline force in terms of Iran's activities around the region. And it's considered um, a clearly malign and dangerous threat by our partners, Israel, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and others who have uh, lobbied the administration to keep the designation. We even saw General Milley this week say uh, he's against uh, delisting the IRGC as an FTO. But the IRGC, if there's going to be an Iran nuclear deal, wants its piece of the action. They want uh, to be able to benefit from the deal. And, and perhaps it's also uh, symbolic for them too to say, hey, look, if you're going to engage with the West, with the United States in securing a nuclear deal, we can't be designated as, as, as a terrorist group. And the, the IRGC has its influence and its allies in the Iranian parliament and throughout the Iranian establishment. And I think the bottom line, Elizabeth, is that every day that this goes by, it gets harder in both Tehran and Washington to come to a resolution because those opposed in both capitals begin to speak up. We even see Democrats as well as Republicans in the Congress now uh, questioning that move. I, I just mentioned uh, Milley, uh, who would also be opposed. And in Iran, you see the hardline you know, members of parliament and others saying, hey, wait a minute, they're crossing a line or potentially crossing a red line. The frustration is these talks have gone on for a year. It seems like the, the deal is almost done on all the difficult technical issues. It it's been a priority for the Biden administration. They've rallied uh, our European allies uh, to come together. They've been working with Russia and China during otherwise difficult times uh, to, to forge a united front in dealing with Iran. And we're held up now on what is largely a symbolic issue. Maybe it can be worked out as, again, we, we haven't been closer than we are now to a deal, uh, but it seems to all be coming down to a very sensitive uh, and symbolic political issue where it's hard to see a way out at this point. You're absolutely right. This is largely a symbolic designation. And as you say, that's not appeased the Congress, the critics in Congress. There will be um, significant domestic pushback if this designation is lifted, um, of course, from Republicans, but also several Democrats in recent weeks have, have spoken up, expressed their reservations, um, including the usual suspects like uh, Senator Bob Menendez. Um, and then also in the region, we should note, uh, countries including Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, 
they will not be happy and have made their concerns known to the Biden administration as well, um, which seems to be lowering expectations that a deal is imminent or could be happening at all. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, when asked uh, this week, said he is not overly optimistic at the prospects of a revived nuclear deal. Um, Andrew, do you think an Iran deal, if one is reached, could have implications for Yemen, um, where we've had a lot of news this week. Um, the Iran-backed Houthi rebel group has now agreed to a two-month ceasefire with the Saudi-backed Yemeni government forces. Um, would love to get your thoughts on the developments in Yemen. Elizabeth, you had a piece on this this week. I, I was actually going to ask you about this, but let me let me take the first cut. And I have nothing other than my own kind of speculation, no inside source. But my thought was that the timing of the truce is telling that here we are at a sensitive point during the Iran nuclear talks and what has been a, a very difficult uh, negotiation in the Yemen war. You cover this, of course, very closely. All of a sudden, we have a truce and a ceasefire, and the Iranian statements were quite effusive in terms of its support for the, the truce and the UN initiative, which Iran has been at best uh, opaque about in its public statements in the past. And of course, they uh, Tehran denies you know, a direct link to the Houthis, although they're supportive, but we all know better. And it's uh, unlikely that there wouldn't have been there would have been a truce at this time without Iran saying now's the time for a truce. There's a lot to deal with that involves Iran, and that includes, you know, Iraq, the Yemen war, Syria. One could hope uh, that if there's an Iran deal, that there could be prospects for diplomacy. It's not assured. Uh, it will require as much or even more attention in terms of the regional engagement but there's always that prospect. But I would ask you uh, the same question. You had some quotes in your article from U.S. Special Envoy Lender King about with regard to the Iranian reaction. Tell us a little about that and how you see it playing out. Right. Well, you mentioned that Iran came out in support of this truce. And of course, so did Saudi Arabia. And it's not often that you see um, those two countries coming um, out on the being on the same page about something. Right. And I, I asked um, Tim Lenderking about this. And what he said is um, Iran needs to, I think, in his words, go a step further and, and show that they want this truce to hold by cutting off their support for the Houthis. Um, I should mention we had not one, but two kind of stunning turns of events in Yemen this week. Um, there was the ceasefire brokered by the United Nations. Um, and then we had uh, Yemen's exiled president um, delegating his powers to a new leadership council that will be tasked with trying to revive peace talks with the Houthis, um, who, as you know, for more than seven years have have fought the Saudi-backed government for control of Yemen and control of the capital and much of the country's north. So a lot remains to be seen in Yemen right now, both in terms of whether the ceasefire can actually hold. There have been 
early reports of skirmishes. And it's also unclear whether this new council can actually work together in spite of their opposing views. Um, the US, for its part, would welcomed the formation of this new leadership council, as well as the truce, of course, which I would say um, the US and others are treating with cautious optimism. Um, and as Lender King told me, this truce is a first step. There is obviously still much that needs to be done to bring an end to a war that's created what the UN says is the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Yeah, and let's hope it it, it holds and uh, Iran will go a step further and that the parties uh, can move ahead. I mean, it's a very difficult time uh, in the region and one has to give credit uh, into the, to the UN envoy, to our envoy, Tim, Tim Lender King and the parties in the region to get to this point. It's something to build on whether connected to the Iran deal or not, the people of Yemen deserve a, a break from what's the, from this war and the tragedy of this war. And uh, it, it's really overdue. Absolutely. And that brings to mind um, another tragedy that's um, been overshadowed, I think, by other international crises of late. Um, Syria's civil war. Andrew, I, I know you've been doing some writing there. Maybe you could walk us through Al Monitor's latest coverage and, and how the Biden administration is handling Syria. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, thinking about the Russia-Ukraine war, you know, UN uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres said last, uh, last month that uh, Syrians feel abandoned by the world. Attention on the conflict was already waning after 11 years. That doesn't mean that the needs of Syrians is, is any less. I mean, the, the, the fighting overall is less, but the country is still uh, broken and divided and the humanitarian challenges are still vast, compounded by uh, the implications of the Russia-Ukraine war, which we talked about earlier. Syrian president, you know, Bashar al-Assad's uh, government and, and repression uh, and the Russian engagement there. And the UN process, uh, political process in Resolution 2254, which people still refer to, seems, you can go back and read it, it seems out of date and out of, out of place with what's happening in, in Syria today. And UN envoy Gary Peterson, he has worked really hard uh, on this process uh, since he came into office over three years ago. Uh, but it seems like they're very far apart. And those are uh, those are Peterson's words. And uh, and so this this conflict um, is kind of now in the shadow of the Russia-Ukraine war. The Biden administration did a review of uh, Syria policy when it came into office. It completed the review in, in December. It seems that the engagement in Syria continues. I mean, in terms of the humanitarian issues, the de-ISIS uh, activities and co coalition work, keep 900 troops there, again, basically focused on uh, de-ISIS de operations. We had four Americans injured yesterday from an attack that seemed to be from an Iran-backed group in Syria. Uh, so the problems uh, continue there. So anyway, uh, pulling this all together, I thought uh, this week's uh, Week in Review column, which will be out later today and uh, available to uh, those on our newsletter list tomorrow, 
to look at these issues and um, seeing where we're at in Syria and reminding people of the challenges. And you mentioned, of course, our, our coverage. We never forget about Syria. Uh, at El Monitor. I mean, we uh, cover it, you and I cover it in terms of the, the, the policy uh, dimension. Uh, our correspondents cover it. Amber and Zaman is regularly in, uh, or often, I should say, in northern Syria uh, and looking at the issues there on the ground. And then we have Syrians covering uh, what's happening in their country, in their lives, in Idlib, in Aleppo. Uh, and they're reporting every day on the difficult situations there, both in terms of uh, the life of the people, the economic challenges, the challenges for, for children and education, the health challenges, um, how uh, the Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, the jihadist group that controls most of uh, Idlib is operating there, Turkey's role. Uh, again, while the attention of the world may be elsewhere at Al Monitor, we continue to focus on on Syria uh, through reporting there and by our engagement, of course, here in Washington. Absolutely, the reporting of our correspondence in Syria, I believe, is is unmatched and, and definitely worth a read. And you know, from speaking to Syrian friends and and sources. I think there is maybe some hope that um, the tragedy in Ukraine can bring renewed attention to Syria's war and importantly, Russia's involvement, um, it, at least when it comes to um, a push for accountability and justice, right? Because victims of Syria's war say the scenes unfolding in Ukraine feel so familiar. It's that same Syria playbook being used in Ukraine, where um, Russia intervened in Syria's war in 2015, helping turn the tide of the conflict in Assad's favor with a bombing campaign that targeted schools, hospitals, other civilian infrastructure, much in the way we see in Ukraine. And I had the chance to interview the, the head of the White Helmets Rescue Organization a few weeks ago. And, and he offered uh, advice for Ukrainians who wish to document potential war crimes on the ground in his country, because that's something that Syrians, unfortunately, um, have some experience in. And, you know, the advice ranged from rescue workers should be wearing GoPro cameras strapped to their helmets. And he warned of the potential for double tap strikes where aircraft bomb a target and then circle back minutes later to drop a second bomb deliberately on the first responders. Um, so that's kind of something I, I've been thinking a lot about lately. And the point that, that he and many other Syrians have made to me, which is that um, because they feel the international community turned a blind eye to Russia's actions in Syria, that perhaps left it emboldened to invade Ukraine. It's interesting you you raise the issue of uh, accountability uh, because that remains one of the priorities of U.S. policy. And as we read the news every day about um, Russia's actions in Ukraine and the call for accountability there, uh, some of the spillover effect might be to again look at what's happening um, or what happened in Syria. There and and again, as with Yemen, um, you know, the Syrian people 
who are amazing, resilient, uh, rich uh, society, you know, culturally, um, it, their contributions uh, to the region and culture of the region have been so vast uh, for so long and so positive. Uh, and again, they don't deserve this 11-year war. Elizabeth, we've run out of time. It's been great uh, catching up with you on what's happening in the region. Thanks for doing it with us this morning. And thanks for your many contributions to All Monitor. Absolutely. Thanks, Andrew, so much for having me. We will return after this break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department Correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest today, Elizabeth Hagedorn, and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Rosabelle Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week, and if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. First, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. His guest this month is the legendary French architect Jean Nouvel, designer of the Institut de Monde Arabe, the Louvre Abu Dhabi, and many other amazing structures. And On Israel with Ben Caspit, where Ben this week interviews Israeli intelligence expert Boaz Ganor. And finally, this podcast, On the Middle East, where I will be here next week with Turkish commentator and El Monitor columnist Kadri Gersel. Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at elmonitor.com.